Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the African American Studies channel at the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very happy to welcome our guest for today, Dr. Olufemi Taiwo. He's here today to talk about his forthcoming book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity, Politics, and Everything Else. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start just with, the, I think, a very easy question, which is, what is Elite Capture? So the basic thing that elite capture is, is when a group or society's interests get whittled down to what they have, what the whole group has in common with those at the top. So it might be resources or a political agenda, but those things end up being hyper-responsive, more responsive to the most advantaged members of the group or society. So I think that much is clear from the words elite capture. Um, The thing that I would add to it that is maybe a little bit more interesting is that I think elite capture is a system behavior, right? So it's not a conspiracy. It's not that, you know, we have to imagine in every society or every era of history that the people with the lion's share of land or wealth are getting together in a room and deciding to organize all of social life around what they find important. Um, But it's just the thing that happens when you have inequality and you have institutions that fail to constrain the social effects of inequality. That's so interesting. And I think that that's definitely going to bleed into some questions I have later. But so already you're saying that there are certain kinds of conditions um, in which something like elite capture sort of thrives more readily than other kinds of conditions. Okay. Wow. So, you know, you started to, you started this work and I first came to to know of your work um, through an article you wrote, you wrote, and I'm just curious about what drove you to expand it into the into a book and, and maybe what this book might have to tell us that the article did not. So there are actually um, a couple articles. There was one um, at the Boston Review that was working with E. Franklin Frazier's work on the black bourgeoisie. And then there was another article that came out later in The Philosopher um, that was talking about standpoint epistemology and you know, the politics of knowledge, essentially. And I was surprised at the reaction to both of the articles. Um, You know, I think it's just one of those time periods where those are issues that people are thinking about and wanting to talk about. And so um, naturally, an essay comes out that's trying to delve into that topic and, and, and people, you know, have a lot to say, they agree, they disagree, they have more questions, all those kinds of responses, but it just got way more engagement than I, I think I was 
anticipating before writing either of them. And so after the second one came out, um, I thought, you know, it would really, I thought it would potentially be useful to expand both of those. So uh, both of the, both of the chapters or sorry, both of those essays are woven into the chapters of the book. Um, But what the book adds is a fair bit of historical context. Both of the theorists who I learned from in putting together the kind of core ideas of the book and also of the political struggles that to me best embody the kind of alternative to deference politics, which is the version of identity politics that I am critical of. The alternative to that is what I call constructive politics, which I think was powerfully practiced in the national liberation struggles of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde and is powerfully part of workers' struggles and you know other kinds of political movements that have happened and that we can learn from historically, but maybe just as importantly are happening right now and that we can simply join and support. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, just sitting with a bit of, you, you know, you wrote these two articles and you weren't anticipating such a sort of big reaction to them. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about that is that, you know, it seems like you have your finger on the pulse of something and it's so curious that you didn't sort of write it with that intent. Like I'm noticing this thing, someone should write about it. I'll be the person that writes about it. And so I guess I'm curious if if there was a set of sort of instigating conversations or an event, or if maybe you were sort of deferred to in a particular room. I'm just curious about sort of what led you, if not sort of feeling like you were witnessing something that was pervasive enough to put your finger on, but instead you were just like, no, I'm noticing this. I'm going to write an article about it. I'm I'm curious, what was the sort of instigating event that led, led to this wonderful book, to those two articles? Yeah, I wouldn't say that there was um, a singular event, but I, but I, there were a number of, there were a number of experiences that I had um, organizing um, in LA, which is where I um, did my graduate work. Um, that made me think both that you know my initial conviction that identity politics was an important approach and it, that it had lessons for us and that we should keep it around, you know, I, I both was kind of cemented in my conviction that that was the case, that we need identity politics, it's good. And also that, you know, the particular ways that we're thinking about identity politics and the particular norms that we have around kind of living it out in our everyday practices um, really merit some criticism, really need some work. And I was having both of those thoughts at the same time and trying to reconcile those thoughts together in an environment where, you know, a lot of the people who are critical of identity politics are critical of the whole enterprise, right? So, so you know, a lot of people weren't necessarily distinguishing between particular ways identity politics was thought about and the project of identity politics. And so, yeah, it was, it was a kind of, you know, it was a kind of um, very intellectual problem 
for for me and i thought it might be of interest to you know a few organizers you know a few other academic egghead types and you know all of a sudden there's this whole different kind of response and i think maybe what i wasn't clocking at the time what i didn't quite latch onto was both how tied up with broader politics and broader cultural war politics that those things I was seeing in the organizing world were, and also how interested people were in thinking about those norms. It's not just that, you know, people have opinions about whatever critical race theory or et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but people actually, you know, people want to think about it. You know, people want to get under the hood and see what's going on in those debates. And once, once, yeah, once the second essay came out, I thought, you know, maybe there's more here than I initially thought. Yeah. You know, there's a number of things that, you know, keep going off in my mind and I'm trying to stay to my script, but then I'm like, no, I'm interested in this. And so I want to stay here with you sort of characterizing um, the book as growing out of a intellectual problem and one that you at first thought would be interesting only to eggheads and organizers, because those seem to me to be, in my mind, kind of worlds apart. Um, and so, and and I will, I will qualify that if I need to, but what I'm interested in is that you sort of describe you describe your sort of interest in this set of ideas, you needing to sort of critique identity politics, but at the same time thinking there is like, there's some good, there's some good stuff there. And so needing to reconcile what was not good with what was good, what needed to be sort of preserved. I'm, I'm curious that that grew out of organizing, right? So actually sort of boots on the ground work. And I'm just, maybe I'm just interested in maybe hearing you talk a bit about, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about your book is it's sweep across so many different sort of social arenas. And so maybe I'm, I'm interested in this sort of link um, between, you know, an institution, maybe like what it means to be an academic now, but also this organizing work, and you haven't been in grad school, right? So studying within an institution, um, but nevertheless engaged in this activist work. And I don't know if it's participation in both of those spheres that made you sort of able to, to, to articulate this in a way that resounds. Um, but I wonder if you could talk about this, because, I mean, as you can imagine, I do want to return back to that that earlier statement you made about elite capture being a system behavior, right? And it, and it having certain conditions where it thrives. And so all of that is kind of circling in my mind as you describe the sort of origins of this project. Yeah, I think, I, I definitely think being in those two different kinds of spaces has a lot to do with the way that this thought ended up coming out for me, right? Um, where being in academia, being in grad school gave me the opportunity to take the kinds of history classes and do the kind of reading that would let me kind of sit the experiences I was having in the organizing world against these very different settings, right? Against the settings that Frazier was interested in decades earlier, the settings that Fanon was interested in decades earlier. Um, and, and, you know, that's the kind of starting point for at least the 
intellectual academic version of the problem, right? How do I, you know, what are the resonances? What are the bits of overlap between those very different contexts and the context I find myself in? Um, but also I think the organizing work contributes to the impulse towards the practical that I try to basically just say in theoretical terms, right? What's constructive politics? Well, it's kind of activity. It's where, you know, we're, we're building things, building institutions, you know, theory can help us do that. Um, you know, uh, lots of things can help us do that, but it's actually doing the construction work that would build a union or a movement for this or a movement for that. Um, and it's the sort of, it's definitely the organizing world where the bias towards action comes from. Um, and yeah, I think I do my best in the book to try to reconcile those with each other. Yeah. I love that. The impulse toward the practical. Um, I had a question about, I think that that's related to that. And we're going to be digging into your chapters in just a, in just a bit, but you know, as you were speaking and you you sort of name-checked Fraser again, I was thinking about the sort of different theorists, scholars, activists you draw on. And it seems to me that that not all of them would identify themselves sort of as politically, you know, of a kind. And so I'm curious about what you make of that. I'm curious about I'm curious about whether or not you think that tells us something about politics and its definitions. If or, or, or what to make of it, you know, that sort of Frazier is in a cohort in your book with someone like Fanon, right? You can say them in the same breath and that somehow makes sense. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about, I don't know if you could say something about that. Yeah, I, I have a, I'm, I'm so glad that you asked me about that. Because <laughs> um, I, I feel like I end up talking around this with a lot of people. Um, and, you know, I... It's, it's one of those issues where I have this rant built up inside of me <laughs> about this issue. Uh, but no, I, I, I think that's totally right. You know, um, Frazier, Woodson, you know, probably left of center for their time, but not, you know, not in the sense that Fanon, you know, <laughs> was left of center, right? You know, like Cabral is essentially, you know, he's speaking in, you know, very deep, terminology that Marxists would recognize and, you know, Lilika Boal is part of that whole trajectory as well. Um, you know, and and Walter Rodney are contemporaries. It's, it's, you know, it's all these various different movements that are not only geographically distinct, but like, as you said, you know, very ideologically different. And I don't know. I, I, I think that's, that is interesting, but you know, one of the things I get ranty about <laughs> is that, you know, these are questions that are often asked of works that use kind of black authors and black thinkers and you know, black intellectual work that aren't always when other people are involved, right? You know, 
everybody I mentioned is to the left of Hegel, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and and you know, and I know that you know there that's to reference that kind of person would have a certain kind of currency in a lot of circles, where. Um, there'd be these additional questions if you bring in E. Franklin Frazier, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's just taken for granted for some people that they're doing the kind of intellectual work that is universally enlightening, that you know people across the different political spectrum could make use of. And so I'm so, you know, I'm appreciative of that question because then I get to say a thing that I just kind of left implicit in the book, which is that is just true of Carter G. Woodson. That's true of E. Franklin Frazier, right? You know, I'm not invoking them as, you know, members of an identity group who, you know, were barking up the same ideological tree that I'm that I'm barking up, right? I'm invoking them as people who made philosophical discoveries in precisely the same sense that I'm invoking, you know, David Lewis, the analytic philosopher who I talk about, or Robert Stallknocker, you know, not people who are whatever, avowed Marxist Leninists or whatever, um, but <laughs> but people who made philosophical insights that are useful and helpful. And that's, you know, that's a status we can afford more widely than we do. And I think, you know, lots of the people that I cite in the book are deserving of it. Yeah, you know, I'm happy. I'm grateful for that rant. You know, what was behind the question was thinking about whether or not that kind of way of reading the world is itself a form of elite capture, this sort of divvying up the world into people we can listen to and not listen to for various kinds of reasons that really don't rely on the merits of their thought. And that being something that happens, you know, unfortunately in activists, leftists, radical circles quite quite a bit. And so, you know, I don't know. I, I think I was curious about what you might make of that because I think for a lot of people, there would be this question, why Frazier, why Woodson, you know? Uh, maybe not why Woodson, but certainly maybe why Frazier. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, um, but it's okay if not. There's a bunch of cool places we can go. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm also, I could also rant about this too, um, <laughs> but a uh, smaller version of a rant. Um, one of the things I'm trying to resist by way of making the other point, right, that you can that you can learn from the insights of people, whether or not they share your politics um, is also that like the point of learning from people is to learn from them. Right. So by citing Frazier, I'm not trying to say this is a Frazierian account of the world. Right. Again, any more than I would be committing myself to that because I've cited David Lewis, or if I had cited Hegel or et cetera. And there's this kind of aestheticization of authors, particularly black authors who are in any way radical, particularly, you know, other authors of color. There's a way of kind of wielding their names or, you know, their identity markers in a pitch to kind of, you know, aesthetically cast your politics as a certain kind, irrespective of the actual things that they said, 
And, you know, there's a kind of inattention to the actual things that they said that comes from aestheticization and, you know, both the inattention and the aestheticization itself are things that I'm trying to resist. Yeah, I feel like you got another banger essay in there about the aestheticization <laughs> of black radical authors. So I feel like you need to maybe get on that. Um <laughs> But very quickly, I think we're about to dive into the book proper, but I'm curious about something you said earlier. Um, I'm still with this question about sort of elite capture sort of taking off in a certain set of, of conditions, right? It being more sort of palatable in certain certain conditions. And I wanted to, to ask a question about sort of you begin your, your book in the I think you don't begin in the United States, but you begin you begin the book thinking about identity politics. And I and I think some of the problems that I think are most visible in sort of U.S. politics. And so I'm curious about that in relationship to you sort of invoking sort of the best examples of strategies to resist elite capture outside of the U.S. And I wonder if that's intentional or I wonder how we think about that, right? Like, could are those strategies sort of portable in the ways that we would want? You know, you know what I mean, given the nature of the U.S. and how it operates? Or are they strategies that can only, for whatever reason, happen outside of the bounds of, of, of a nation like the U.S.? Yeah, I'm one of the things, I mean, the book is book tries to be international in focus and if nothing else I hope it accomplishes getting people to see you know encouraging people to see the US's political conditions as specific right so you know, it's it's not as though the rest of the world is a kind of asterisk where, you know, um, there's, there's stuff that works in the not U.S. and, you know, there's stuff that works in the U.S. and we never the twain shall meet or something like that. You know, I don't, you don't think that. And most people don't, you know, I don't think would accept a claim that was phrased so bald-facedly. But nevertheless, we kind of, you know, relegate politics elsewhere to sidelines sometimes and give the particular features of particular eras of U.S. politics more universal features that they deserve. Like, this is a place. And I don't so much think as, sorry, I don't so much think that um, reflecting on the liberation struggle in Guinea-Bissau is a direct answer to how to win liberation in the U.S. So much as I think reflecting on the differences between the U.S. and Guinea-Bissau might be helpful for understanding why the U.S. might require different strategies and you know um, particular approaches and particular ways of thinking. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. You know, I was I was curious about. I mean, that was the basic question, like how do these two places and their specific uh, political structures, um, how, do, how do we understand then what happens on the ground and compare them to each other? I think that was in the question, but also trying to think about whether or not the inequality in the U.S. and the way that that inequality is structured, it does differ um, from other countries and, and whether or not that makes it more difficult to stage certain kinds of interventions. 
but I think we'll probably get into that as we move maybe across the book. Um, so one of the things I was interested in, and I, I know I'm sure you have an answer to this, is you know how is elite capture different than the Pareto principle or the 80-20 principle? And I'm curious about whether or not it has a unique explanatory power or a unique political valence. I'm just curious what you would say to someone who's just like, oh, well, you know, basically what you're describing is this economic principle that, you know, folks have talked about for years. Yeah, so it's definitely a similar kind of thought um, as the Pareto principle. And, you know, Pareto was one of the kind of OG researchers of elite politics, right? So that that that's actually a, a reassuring result for me <laughs> um, if it turns out to be something similar to that. Um, all that said, what I'm trying to say is extremely holistic. Um, so you might Start with how wealth is divided, um, but where one should end up is how social life is organized quite broadly. So, you know, find me a resource, whether it's monetary resources, wealth, dollars, um, or whether it's more intangible kinds of resources, um, attention, uh, whether it's something in the middle, research capacity, state capacity. Um, And you're going to find relationships between how the aspects of human life and activity that explain how those resources get produced and where those resources go, um, they wrap themselves tightly around hierarchies. I don't think it's a law of human organization as such. We could create a world where being an elite meant something quite different from what it has meant so far under capitalism. Um, But we would have to we would have to create the world. We would have to do that on purpose. Um, and so it's a contingent result of the particular ways that we've designed human interaction. Yeah. You know, the reason why I ask is because, you know, the, I mean, and I'm sure you, you're you familiar with this, but like the 80-20 principle like obtains across, you know, like sports endeavors, for example, right? Like if you look at the NBA, you know, 20% of the players are, you know, doing 80% of all putting all the stats on the board and something like that. I mean, it obtains in so many different parts of society. And so it's interesting to hear you say it's not a law of human organizations as such. Um, Cause I still, I still wonder what you do. And I don't know if you've engaged this literature, what you do with some of the various findings where um, the Pareto principle has seemed to be in effect, even in places that you could say, aren't sort of demonstrably, aren't entirely determined by capitalist relation. And I'd have to think about where that is, but I'm sure I could come up with an example. Yeah, I mean, what the Pareto principle is at bottom is it's an observation about 
causal structure, right? Um, not all of the things that produce outcomes are equally relevant to explaining, you know, total system level outcomes. So um, that's a thing that could apply to basketball, just as it could apply to, I don't know, GDP. But what we're interested in as people, you know, um, on team justice, let's say, (laughs) isn't actually, you know, explaining outcomes in this kind of passive way, but explaining outcomes in um, this more clearly socially contrived, socially constructed way. So take basketball, for instance. Um, It is true, let's say, that 20% of the players generate 80% of the points or something like that, right? So, you know, LeBron and the sixth man are not going to put up the same numbers, right? But if the team wins the championship, everybody gets a ring, right? That's the social outcome of how we've decided to split up the kind of result of a process that people contribute to, you know, in this imbalanced way, right? LeBron gets a ring, the, you know, the towel manager gets a ring, maybe, maybe the towel manager doesn't get a ring, but everybody on the team gets a ring. And it's that outcome space, it's the kind of response to the, you know, whatever inequalities are natural, let's say, that's the place where social outcomes live. So it's because we've decided that basketball is a team sport, that's the team that gets a ring or doesn't, and not the individual scorers that get rings and don't. You know, there are plenty of other things in the NBA that are unequally distributed, like pay, right? Um, but those two are outcomes of how we've decided to organize teams, organize compensation, right? Uh, we let people negotiate individually for what team they're going to be on in the first place and how much they're going to get paid. And those explain, you know, the inequalities in the system in the same way that the basics of the game explains the equality in championship ranks. And if we want to win justice, you know, we're going to have to figure out another way to relate to whatever inequalities might be naturally, what might exist naturally. One potential principle might be from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. And then you might well have the Pareto principle on the way in, the from each according to their ability, but nevertheless have something egalitarian on the way out to each according to their need. Yeah. No, that's a that's a really great way and elegant way of answering that. So thank you for engaging with that so so deeply. Um so I'm curious about whether or not, you know, elite capture and, and you describe this in your book, but I wonder if you could if you could say some words about it. 
about whether or not it sort of takes different forms and different sort of social organizations at different levels of society, about historically, if we're looking, you know, across maybe a century, whether it looks different across that century. I wonder if you could just sort of talk about the sort of nature and character of it in time or across time. Yeah, I think elite capture is as variable as our political structures are. And you might even think of our political structures as being, or at least implying different forms and kinds of elite capture. That might be one way to sit them next to each other, right? Capitalism is a particular kind of economic system where a particular kind of elite has captured the means of production, right? Like it's an economic system where we define a new sort of elite around the means of production. We could define economic elites differently as was true under feudalism. Um, And that's one way of explaining what the difference is between the two systems. Um, Similarly, I think at different scales across different eras, we're going to find different kinds of elite capture and different extents of elite capture in a populist political era um, or in a, you know, uh, state socialist government, right? The elites and non-elites might be very close in wealth and political power or at least closer than in other systems, in an autocracy, say, right? And I think really what we're likelier to get comparing across eras isn't, you know, times when there is elite capture versus times when there isn't. You know, we should think of inequality, we should think of elite capture in the way that we think of inequality, right? Where it can be greater or lesser, In fact, inequality itself is one of the two things that uh, two families of things about a society that I think is probably most predictive of the level of elite capture, right? Do the elites have 1,000 times the amount of wealth as the non-elites? Do they have 100 times? Do they have 10 times? Those three scenarios are going to be very different elite capture scenarios, all other things being equal. But it's not just the level of difference between the economic or otherwise political power of the elites versus non-elites that explains how elite capture functions and how much of it you have. I think the other thing are institutions, in particular, the institutions that are designed to constrain elite capture. So holding everything else constant, do you have a strong labor movement? Do you have strong unions or do you have weak unions? Right. Strong unions, even in the presence of high wealth inequality, are probably going to constrain elite capture. Um weak unions in the face of high income and wealth inequality are probably not going to be able to constrain elite capture. Um, And the other scenarios are somewhere in the middle. 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. And you're already and you're venturing into an area that I that I want to talk about, which is sort of thinking about elite capture and its consequences for how sort of all kinds of people, even non-elites, relate to one another. And so I was really struck by your um, your use of uh, the emperor has no clothes that that fairy tale. Um, and I wonder if you could say a bit about the role it plays in helping you uh, explain how how, you know, authority structures social life. I've been gravitating towards that example for, for years now, a better part of a decade. And what I like about it is that a lot of people know it, right? So that makes it <laughs> helpful for communicating, <laughs> right? Um, but the other thing that I like about it beyond that, you know, just the convenience is that it's actually different, meaningfully different from a lot of the ways that I think we're habituated into talking about inequality and oppression. And so it serves as a reminder that, hey, there's this simple idea that we all understand that we all could just get more use out of than we currently do. Right. We could just use it more widely than we necessarily do right now. And that is, of course, the idea that people have reasons to say things and to act in particular ways other than really wanting to do those things. Right. The the emperor has no clothes story. You know, just just a quick summation of it for anybody listening who might not be familiar with the story. Um, the emperor's advisors come in with a hanger that has nothing on it, an empty hanger, and they tell the emperor that it's a, you know, it's a fancy robe that can only be seen by the competent and smart and great. And so the emperor pretends to put it on. He walks around the town. Everybody pretends to see it until a small child makes fun of the naked emperor and then everybody laughs, right? That's the story. And what the story is cluing us into is the ordinary mundane relationship of power dynamics between people and power structures, which explain those dynamics in explaining people's behavior. When the emperor passes by the, you know, I say the candlestick maker in the book, just to, you know, this somebody on the street, we don't have to think that they are fooled by the advisor's story, right? We can just think maybe the emperor's kind of an asshole and could do whatever he wants to me if I embarrass him and maybe would do whatever he wants to me if I embarrass him. That's already good enough to explain why people act as if the emperor is really wearing clothes. And what that is saying is that the problem in those communicative interactions, the problem happening when somebody pretends to see the robe and compliments the emperor on the robe isn't a problem of ideology. It's not a problem of beliefs necessarily. Right? It's not a problem 
necessarily of people having distorted pictures of what the world is actually like. We don't have to think that anybody really believes the emperor is wearing clothes, not the advisors, not the emperor, not the people. It could be that every single individual in the story knows that the emperor has no clothes on, but everybody's trying to figure out what reactions from other people, you know, work out to their advantage in the best kind of way. And I think incentives, power structures are that fundamental to how we act in the world. And if we were willing to make more use of that idea, we might be, you know, more willing and up for reforming our power structures directly than necessarily trying to convince everybody all the time, you know, that this thing is true or that that thing is true. Yeah, no, I really, I mean, I love that. It's like one of my favorite parts of the book, right? That everything isn't sort of reducible down to ideology or sort of false ideology or something like that. I mean, I think it's really powerfully um, explanatory. Um, I think I have a question here and it's, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm tripping over formulating it, but I guess, I guess I'm curious about, okay, so you have all of these sort of incentives, these power structures on one hand, and then you have the emperor sort of naked before us. And I guess like, I mean, a part of your book is about the difficulty of then convincing people that it's worth talking about the emperor who's naked before us, but could you maybe... I don't know. Tell us why that's so difficult. And I know I'm skipping ahead here, but it seems to me like that's a really tough thing, right? You've just sort of laid out, maybe we all know it, right? But for various reasons, we don't want to die. We have children. We need our livelihood. You know, we've, we're already on the emperor's bad side for whatever reason. You know, there's, there's, there are real reasons to, to, to stay mum. And so even people who are engaged in may, maybe various kinds of revolutionary work, various kinds of radical work, I mean, you and your book sort of point out that they are not, they are not, um, they're like sort of no less likely to maybe have forms of elite capture within their organizations. And so I guess I'm curious about, I'm curious about that, about what produces that difficulty of having that honest conversation. He's parading through town naked, you know, and it takes the courage of a child or even the ignorance of a child to not know the stakes of its speech, you know, of his or their speech. Um, to point out what's before everyone. Yeah, the way the way that I like to think about it is less in terms of convincing people that the emperor is naked, and more in terms of how do we make it easy to point out that the emperor is naked. And, you know, to kind of map this back onto the, the, the stakes that we're interested in that I think you're, you know, honing in on in the question. One of the most powerful reasons that people act as though the empire that we live in has clothes is that people don't really have a reason not to, right? People have a lot to lose if they do. They have little to lose if they go along with the story we're all telling. 
you know, Colin Kaepernick lost a very lucrative job for the mildest of symbolic recognitions that the empire might not have clothes on. And, you know, all the people who did stand for the Pledge of Allegiance were fine. That's the kind of thing that explains, you know, quite a bit of elite capture. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what anybody in the NFL stadium, you know, standing for the Star Spangled Banner really thinks about the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. But if I had to guess, I would guess that they mostly don't. No, that that is the secret of of privilege and power. You know, like we spend so much time trying to figure out the different stereotypes and and ways that power structures and powerful people and powerful organizations distort what it is to be this oppressed group or that oppressed group and the ways that they think wrongly or inaccurately or unfairly about oppressed groups, but they mostly do not. They think about, you know, what they're trying to do and moves they're trying to make. And, you know, when they involve us at all, it's usually as things to be stepped on, on the way to where they're going. And yeah, no, that, uh, yeah, I guess that's the other thing about, you know, I, I think that puts us back in the territory of the constructive approach of building power, building organizations. You know, at the end of the day, HR can throw you all the pizza parties they want. But until until the work conditions mean something to the corporation on the terms that they understand as being meaningful, you know, I suspect their attention will be elsewhere. And, you know, strikes speak to capital in the language that capital understands. Yeah, yeah, I guess behind that question, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit more is, I mean, you said most people don't have any reason sort of not to go along with what it means to get along. I guess I'm curious about how we get people over that hump since it seems like we're in a moment where we're seeing, you know, sort of even radical energies be subsumed back into just a sort of another part of the apparatus. So even the example you gave of Colin Kaepernick, I mean, he's had a very interesting afterlife following that protest and it, and it becomes hard to think about, well, damn, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, know, gosh, you know, it becomes really hard. Um, But I don't want us to get bogged down here because there's so much more to talk about in your, in your book. And so maybe we can, we can turn to Carter G. Woodson. I think he might be sort of useful um, to get us moving on some of your other ideas. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about why he's so central to your thinking. And I'm, I'm thinking especially about your invocation of Woodson in relationship to the concept of common ground that you bring up in your book. Yeah, so I, I think this calls back something that we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, what kinds of contributions thinkers can make. Um, 
So the kind of contribution that Carter G. Woodson made to my mind was to just make it plain, you know, from a theoretical standpoint, the kind of intervention that the Emperor's New Clothes story makes. The Emperor's New Clothes story makes it via, you know, allegory. It tells you this little fable. Carter G. Woodson is making this same kind of intervention, concretely talking about an actual social system, which is, you know, the system of education that he encountered in the U.S. and its colonies. There's so much to say about education. Um, for now, <laughs> yeah, for, for, for now, what I'll say is, I think what, what Carter G. Woodson found is that, you know, you just don't need the distinction, right? You, a system of education just is another one of the systems that are designed in conformity with colonial interests, right? So once you figured out how colonialism works, how colonial interests protect themselves, then you figured out how they do education, right? It's not as though, you know, there's a nefarious plot to convince black students that they aren't worth as much as other students, uh, that that is certainly the thing that the colonial interests think, um, and that is how they run the education system. But it's how they run the education system because it's how they run the colony, right? So so you're talking about a subsystem of a larger system, um, but that education system is just part and parcel of the overall power structure. And once you understand that, you'll understand the classroom, right? In the same way that once you understand the empire, you understand you will understand why the candlestick maker compliments the emperor on his clothes, even though he isn't wearing any. Well, yeah, well, you almost went there. I feel like you're anticipating my question. And so we might as well go there now. Why are educators, I mean, I feel like you've already answered this, but just in case you want to say more, you know, educators have real pride of pride real pride of place um, in your book. And I'm, I was so curious about that and struck by sort of just the multiple examples of folks who were, who were teachers, right? And not even, they might've been professors also, but they really understood themselves as sort of being in the room teachers, being on the ground teachers, as sort of that being an important part of their um, sort of activist praxis. And so I wonder if you could talk about that in relationship to elite capture and the things that you're interested in. Yeah. I don't know. I've gone back and forth on this a lot. Why Why did I gravitate so much to teachers? And, you know, I, I, I feel like in the spirit of keeping with my own, you know, materialist analysis, right, <laughs> I should be honest enough to say one potential reason is just that I am a teacher and, you know, maybe I just have a hammer and so I see nails everywhere, right? You know, maybe that's what's going on. But but maybe there's something more to it, and the something more to it that might be there is that I think what education is doing, and education in the kind of broad sense that Carter G. Woodson was thinking, and not just education in the narrow sense of what goes on between seven and three at a K through twelve school or something like that, right? Um, but what we're doing when we build the next generation of people, which is what we're doing when we educate, 
um, is laying the political conditions to either continue or to redirect the progress of our society up until now. Like education is just an aspect of society where we are directly engaged in the project of what tomorrow is going to be at, you know, a, at a holistic sense and hopefully building people, building relationships between people accordingly. And I think a lot of the revolutionaries that I studied, Lilika Boal, um, Amilka Cabral, I think they understood what they were doing in those same terms. You know, that's why they saw education and combat as both top priorities, right? During a war, if you want to have a self-determining population, you know, you need to build the kinds of relationships, the kinds of resources, and the kinds of people that can actually do that. It's not a thing you write down in a book somewhere. It's a thing that you build. Yeah, yeah no, that's great. Like, I'm, I'm really going to put, I'm going to put that on my dry erase board uh, tomorrow in my office. Education is engaged in the project of what tomorrow will be as a, con- I mean, I love thinking about it as a kind of constructive project. And if we have time, I, I would love to hear from you about what that might look like. Jeez, right now in our everyday jobs. But just because that's a big question. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about deference politics and standpoint epistemology. As I said, that was that was the first kind of essay. I don't remember the, the original title that I came to of yours. Um, and so I wonder if you could tell us about how it relates to folks who you describe as sort of already being in the room and that being the part of identity politics that you sort of were most unsettled by, we'll say. Yeah, so so the essay was called um, "Being in the Room Privilege," and one of the things I was reacting to and trying to think my way through is the gap between theory, as I understood it, and practice in identity politics around, you know, these core ideas of standpoint epistemology. So there are independent moral reasons to think this, but people also say that they have kind of knowledge reasons to say things like what we should do is center the most marginalized and, and, you know, those kinds of phrases that for me cue up deference politics or deference epistemology. And, what people are saying are indeed the core insights of standpoint epistemology, which I'm just on the team for standpoint epistemology is what's up. Right. Like, um, you know, like, so, um, knowledge is socially situated. What you know depends on where you are in society and what you can know and what's easy for you to know. Um, marginalized people have, you know, special, direct, easier access to certain kinds of information. We should take that into account when we do research. Those are core tenets of standpoint epistemology. Um, Each one of them is just correct, as far as I can tell, um, and important, crucially important. 
But one of the things that I was reacting to is, you know, my point of view, you know, black left politics is fairly well represented, you know, not as, not as well as I would like, obviously, but, you know, there's lots of black lefty folks in, in the grad school that I went to and in academy as I encountered it. And people often talked about those perspectives, you know, and just talked about them as the black perspective. And I was, I found that a little confusing because I was like, if y'all's churches were anything like mine, (laughs) you know that we have, you know that we are a fringe perspective, just numerically, just, just count. Like, and don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people who, who, you know, people's politics are, you know, people's politics are complicated and they're varied, right? Like people who might be progressive on, you know, imperialism might be less progressive on sexuality, but might be progressive with respect to workers' rights, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like people contain multitudes. We all contain multitudes. All that is good. But in terms of, you know, what we're doing in black radical politics, the starting point for me has been that, you know, we are, we are a minority, not just in the sense of having access to these institutions, but in having these politics and pursuing those politics without admitting this doesn't make sense to me. And, and thus like, the idea that centering the most marginalized is going to involve lifting up your perspective, which is not the statistically most common one, also doesn't make also didn't make sense to me. Uh, this is a thing that I that I say openly now because I feel like I've sorted out how I want to say it, but I didn't quite I didn't say it in this way in the essay. Um, Partially because what I was trying to figure out is like, what's going on? What's the motivation for talking in this way? Um, And what's the fairest I can be to it? So can I ask you like how, so do you read that as a kind of elite capture? Like, and I get that we can imagine a bunch of different actors who have different motivations, like the black leftist who does want greater clout within the institution. And let's be real, that is a way of getting it in this current moment. Um, and so I'm curious, I'm curious about that. Do you understand that as a form of elite capture? And if you do, you know, to me, this is where it gets kind of tricky because it's like, yes, we all know that person who's a black leftist who nevertheless is only thinking about how to get more money out of the university for themselves, how to get that endowed chair, whatever. Um, and I guess I'm just, I'm curious about how we understand that because they might even so still be a true believer. You know what I mean? And so it's so it's so uh, entangled um, that I wonder, I wonder what we do with that person, right? Who's willing to speak on behalf of black people who don't want what they're talking about while they're also sort of using that language, not really to fight any freedom struggle, but to elevate themselves within a, with a certain kind of cachet within an institution that we know for the most part is harmful um, to the populations. This person, you know, sort of espouses, you know, sort of pretends to be, um, act on on whose behalf it, they pretend to be acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm just curious how you understand that. Yeah, this is part of why 
it was so important for me to think of elite capture as a system behavior. I got you. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> right. So because, because all those stories, there are versions of all those stories, right? There's the person who sits here and calculates and be like, you know, what do I say about black people to get the grant or whatever? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, there's, there's right. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get in trouble. All right. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. so there's that person, there's the person who has just drunk the Kool-Aid, right? There's the person who just, you know, genuinely believes that, like, what I'm saying is either the opinion of Black people or the opinion of the Black people who matter, and there's lots to unpack there, but I'll move on for just a second. Um, there's the person that's just kind of, you know curious and 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 trusting right who you know isn't at the top of the academic hierarchies and sees what the people who are at the top of top of the academic hierarchies are saying and you know tries to get in where they fit in right all of that is happening there's no unifying psychological story to tell across those actors the only thing to tell or the only unifying story is the you know basic kind of material gap between which people can access you know the levers of you know the imprimatur of a fancy school and the advertising dollars of a well-resourced press and etc cetera, etc cetera. There's those who can access those and those who can't. And the selection of those who can is not random, right? It's related to all these, you know, selection biases. It's related to who could go to the good schools earlier and all those other things. And so that's the thing I was trying to work through in the being in the room privilege essay. Um, and that ended up being a really central kind of thought to the whole project. No, that's really great. And we're running out of time, but I still wanted to get there. I have two more questions, things that I just absolutely want to talk to you about before we go. Um, And so you've talked about this a bit throughout our conversation, but I wonder if you could just go ahead and spell out for us um, your idea of constructive politics as being a way to to combat um, elite capture, to combat some of these bad forms of identity politics, et cetera. Yeah, so... The thing that I'm contrasting constructive politics to is what I call deference politics. So, you know, one thing you could do once you recognize the being in the room privilege problem, um, you could think, well, you know, the university has already admitted whoever it's admitted. The business has already hired whoever it's hired to you know, this or that level of decision-making. And the only thing I can do from here is, you know, um, manage my interactions differently. I can uh, listen to the black person in the room or to the trans person in the room or, you know, whatever, whatever the relevant identity might be. Right. Um, And I could redistribute power in the room as it's been built for me by the powers that be. And that's what I can do to challenge injustice. And, you know, acts of deference, you know, sometimes that's the person to listen to in the room. I'm not at all disputing that. 
I just don't think it's a good overall orientation to the whole social problem that we have. And so constructive politics is what I'm trying to push for instead as an alternative kind of area of focus to the deference approach. So constructive politics is we need to build things. We need to build organizations. We need to build um, things like unions or, um, you know, um, movements, things that are repeated patterns of interaction that can change the actual society that explains who gets what and um, what forms of justice or injustice prevail. And so, you know, from that kind of starting point, you end up being in a different kind of you know, you end up thinking of the problem and the solution a bit differently, right? Whatever we want to say about people in the elite making mistakes, either moral mistakes or kind of, you know, social scientific mistakes, just getting wrong what the world is like, you know, none of that is new, right? None of that is particular to our generation. Every generation is going to produce opportunists and grifters and et cetera, et cetera. And, and just negligent people and careful people. Like if there's a bunch of people, there's a bunch of variation. That's just how we work as creatures. Um, but the question is, how much can those people get away with? And, and that's a question about, you know, the forms of organization that there are the forms of social constraint, the forms of norms, the forms of, you know, actual sanction that people meet out in the world. And those are things that we build, right? If somebody from, you know, if somebody from the PAIGC wanted to make a statement to press about, you know, what Guinea-Bissau really wanted, (laughs) right, there would have been you know, ways of holding that person accountable, right? If they said something that wasn't what the total group wanted. In the absence of that kind of organization, then, you know, individuals are going to vary in the way that individuals always vary. Um, So, yeah, I think it's a call for building organization, for building the good kinds of political culture, um, and for doing those in ways that are hopefully mutually supporting. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was just like the sort of last chapter in your book, and I was really struck by it. By it seems like to me a tonal shift, and you start talking about sort of trauma and its place and remaking the world. Um, and I wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah, I mean... I, I think you're definitely right to see it as a tonal shift. And what I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to focus the book on the kind of merits of the positions that I'm taking up and taking issue with. Um, but I think one of the things we end up having to acknowledge, especially if we have this practical focus, right, is that we're all, you know, we're not that rational. <laughs> You know, we do things for all sorts of reasons. Some of them have to do with our kind of considered judgments of the world. But some of us, some of those things have to do with our, you know, 
our experiences, our feelings, our resentments, our hopes, our aspirations, who we respect, who we resent. And the role of trauma and the way that we think about trauma in the kind of intellectual positions that the rest of the book responds to is something that um, I touched on in the um, being in the room essay, which is the the kind of backbone for that chapter. Um, and it's something that I think you have to take head on. And I really, you know, if I convince people of nothing else in the book, I want to convince people of that chapter of, you know, of, of that way of getting off with deference politics, because it's not just that, you know, as an intellectual matter that, you know, marginalization doesn't give you all of the answers, but even in a deeper, effective, moral, spiritual sense Trauma doesn't give you all the answers. It just doesn't. That's not what it is. It's not what it's for. Um, yeah, you know, I, I saw you quote Sarah Schulman and you're fighting the good fight, but she's received a lot of hell for that book. And yep, so I saw yep. that and I was like, okay, okay, Femi. <laughs> okay, you're fighting the good fight out yeah. here. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes, you know. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, being in conversation with me. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It's a great conversation.